This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Man, have we got another great show for you today. Man, Ferguson, it's there's rumblings again. Ferguson's back at it a year after. A year after. Uh, you know, it makes you wonder if anything ever really gets done. We, you know, we heard about the Ferguson problems last year, and um, then the, you know, they they had. We know they had an election, but another state of emergency was declared in Ferguson after a shooting. This, remember, is in St. Louis County, and um, ah, it just it just seems like nothing seems to be progressing, and then. In the news, you hear that there's four men with with automatic weapons and military gear, basically. They're stirring the pot a little bit. They're stirring the pot. And um, these, you may have heard of these guys. They're called Oath Keepers, which leads us into today's topic. Today we are going to be talking about... Um, Paranoia. Are we as a society becoming more and more paranoid? Are there a lot of, you know, conspiracy theorists that are out there? And are we becoming more believing in conspiracies or less believing in conspiracies? Who's really behind these Ferguson riots? Are these just the citizens meeting to just vent their frustration that nothing has changed? Or are there other organizations that are behind it with, you know, with bad intentions, trying to to start a civil war? What's going on? Anyway, paranoia. We wanted to talk to an expert today. Dr. David Laporte will be joining us in just a few minutes, and he is an expert um, in this, a professor at Indiana University School um, of Psychology. And he is here to help us understand a little bit more about what is paranoia, where you know how we're kind of doing overall. So all those conspiracy theorists, think about it. How many times we've had conspiracies around different things, the JFK assassination, the 9-11 cover-up, Area 51, all of these different areas. And then if you even get into Jade Helm 15, you remember that one? That was the most recent one where uh, in Texas they're going in the you know the national guard are going to go in and do maneuvers in texas to just practice their military activities and a lot of people are thinking oh it's it's the way the government's going to take over the country conspiracies is it now is it a conspiracy or are they just right on have they got it have they figured it out paranoia we'll be talking about it in just a few minutes by the way speaking about paranoid um donald trump's still in the news <laughs> And he he got he was on CNN today, and they asked him a pretty straight up question: Is he a whiner? And um, here's his response. Do you have that? Uh, here's his response about: Are you a whiner? I am a 
am the most fabulous whiner. I, I do whine because I want to win, and I'm not happy about winning. Are whiners winners? And I am a whiner, and I'm a whiner, and I keep whining and whining until I win. And I'm going to win for the country, and I'm going to make our country great again. Hmm. Whining his way to the top. <laughs> yeah, some would say winding your way to the top. Do we want a first whiner? Do we want the chief whiner? I mean, I think what it is, and everybody gets it, it's so much of it is just, it's entertaining, I guess. It's interesting. But, um, and then Hillary Clinton was asked too today her view on what he said, and she was frustrated and, ah, oh, and she was interesting. She tied uh, Trump basically to the Republicans and how the Republicans are anti women and they're going to come in and take everything from you. And then somebody had the gall to ask, so why did you go to his wedding? Ah, blah, blah, blah. He's funny. It was entertaining. I'm telling you, this is why we have conspiracy theorists, because how else could all these people be running? It's a conspiracy. It has to be. It has to be. It couldn't just be survival of the fittest, is it? This couldn't just be Darwin. Actually, it might be. I don't know. Anyway, got a great show for you. Stick with us. Uh, in uh, in just a minute, we'll be talking again with Dr. David Laporte about uh, some of his research on paranoia. Are we getting better or worse as a country, as a society? But before we get to all of that, let's get to and welcome back. Thank you, Matt. Kathy's back. Healthy? Feeling better? Much better. Thanks okay, so much. Good to have yeah. you. Let's do the headlines. Well, as you mentioned, Matt, the unrest in Ferguson, Missouri, continued Monday as police arrested dozens of protesters during a fourth straight night of unrest. Adding to the confusion was a group called the Oath Keepers, where all members are former military, police, and first responders. Officials there say their presence, however, is unnecessary and inflammatory. Here's St. Louis County Police Chief John Belmer. There is a small group of people out there that are intent on making sure that we don't have peace that prevails. Ferguson is under a state of emergency following demonstrations due to what at the one-year anniversary of Michael Brown's death. The EPA says toxic waste has traveled more than 100 miles through parts of Colorado and New Mexico and is next headed for Lake Powell in Utah. Three million gallons of waste escaped after the EPA accidentally breached a dam holding back heavy metals used in gold mining last week. That mine hasn't been plugged yet and is reportedly spilling out 500 gallons of toxic waste per minute. Ryan Flynn from New Mexico's Environment Department is not happy. We were really frustrated with with EPA. Well, first and foremost, they didn't tell us about it for 24 hours. And so that's just unacceptable. Colorado and New Mexico officials declared stretches of the Animas and St. Juan rivers to be disaster areas. Donald Trump fired back at Carly Fiorina yesterday after Fiorina said there was no excuse for his remarks aimed at Fox News anchor Megyn Kelly. On his Twitter page, Trump said, if you listen to Fiorina for more than 10 minutes straight, you develop a massive headache. Meanwhile, Kelly weighed in on Trump's comments aimed at her. Trump, who is the front runner, will not apologize. And I certainly will not apologize for doing good journalism. So I'll continue doing my job without fear or favor. And Mr. Trump, I expect, will continue with what has been a successful campaign thus far. This is a tough business, and it's time now to move forward. 
According to the latest NBC News poll, Trump still leads with 23 percent of the GOP vote, followed by Ted Cruz at 13 percent, Ben Carson at 11, and Fiorina and Marco Rubio are tied with 8 percent. Former governor and current GOP presidential hopeful Rick Perry has reportedly stopped paying campaign staffers. This includes staffers at his Austin headquarters as well as in early primary states. His campaign says Perry will still campaign hard, just on a budget. Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders spoke to a packed house in Los Angeles last night, vowing to end institutional racism. This coming two days after Black Lives Matter protesters derailed one of his rallies. And Matt, Melissa Gilbert is running for Congress. Do you really? Remember her? Oh, yeah. for sure. The she wo- was one of my girlfriends. Was she? Yeah. <laughs> the woman best known as Laura on Little House on the Prairie yeah, is Laura running, Ingalls. Yeah, running to represent Michigan's 8th Congressional District as a Democrat. The seat is currently held by Republican Mike Bishop. Gilbert said she's running to make life a little easier for all families who feel they've fallen through the cracks. <laughs> Don't they all say that? Absolutely. But see, <laughs> now, but Laura Ingalls knows mm-hmm. what falling through the cracks is all about. Yes, yeah, she does. She's fallen herself. Right? She probably she did. I, I don't remember all the stories, but I remember once she fell into a thing of mud, like a, like a, I don't know. It was, it was sad. Yeah, very sad. This is great news. Were you a Little House on the Prairie watcher? Not really, no. but I had three sisters that were, mm-hmm. and you know, they pretty much we had one television. Mm-hmm. Uh oh. Yeah. So they dominated until mm-hmm. I pulled their hair. That remember does. back in the day when pulling oh, hair that mattered? That was big. Yes, I do remember that. Having two brothers, yes, I, I remember that Haven't done that well. for a long time. But she's <laughs> so that's so she's running as a Democrat, as a which Democrat? is interesting because I didn't know she was a Democrat. I, I didn't, didn't either. I didn't know what she was. So Laura, now we but, know. But didn't Laura go away to school? Or no, that was her sister. One of them went away to blind, blind school. Yeah, and then she came back. Didn't she get healed or something? This is good. Said, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's good memories right there. <laughs> Takes you back a long way. Oh, yeah. Wow, that was old. She'll be a great candidate. She had wonderful parents. Wonderful parents in a one-bedroom house. Hey, uh, great uh, show for you coming up. Do you feel like, as, as a society, as a culture, are we becoming more paranoid? Do we have all of these conspiracy theories you know, that where the government's trying to slowly take us over, right? And the NSA, oh, the NSA. Well, we're going to talk to the expert. He's actually written the book on it. He has a book coming out, Paranoid, Exploring Suspicion from the Dubious to the Delusional. So we're going to ask him right up front. Dr. David Laporte will be joining us. Are we becoming more paranoid? Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, from Area 51 to Jade Helm 15 and the 1969 moon landing, many have questioned the truth and intentions of government's actions. They develop their own theories on these events and often become paranoid, sometimes resulting in violent reactions. But it isn't just the government that causes paranoia and these ever-increasing conspiracy theories. Many even believe that Elvis is still alive. Right. And that Tupac Shakur that, uh, you know, maybe they're not even sure he died. Isn't this crazy? So what causes people to become paranoid and when does it become too much? Joining us today is Dr. David Laporte, professor at Indiana University of Pennsylvania School of Psychology. 
He's here to help us understand more this idea of paranoia. Dr. Laporte, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. So do you sense, are, are we becoming more paranoid? We have more and more of these, uh, with the NSA and all of these other theories out there, are we becoming more paranoid? No, I think we are, and I think part of it is just what you, you talked about, the NSA. You know, 15, 20 years ago, if you said, well, the government is listening to my emails and, and they're listening to my phone calls and so forth, we probably would have called you paranoid. Yeah. Of course, today, you, you would have been prescient. You would have had some sort of <laughs> foresight about it. But I think that there is reason, and I think things like the NSA contribute to that. There are lots of threats to our sense of security and safety. Our government's monitoring us. We have drones, both commercial government and private drones, flying overhead, satellites, surveillance cameras. There's lots of things in our environment that signal to us that it is not safe, that we're being watched, we're being followed, we're being monitored. And I think that this is eroding our sense of trust and sense of safety. Hmm. I mean, it seems like... You know, back in the day, 300 years ago, people could be paranoid that they might be harmed anyway, right? But you don't, you don't have news reports of all the things you should be worried about. Exactly. And, and those, you know, 300 years ago, what they were afraid of were things like gases that had, you know, been discovered. Right. You know, at the turn of the last century, people were afraid of x-rays or these dirigibles that were flying overhead that were monitoring them. And, the, you know, the kind of stuff that might have been a, a paranoid delusion in the 1950s where we think this person is perfect, you know, crazy. I can't read minds. We can't follow you. We can't put a computer chip in you. We can do all that these days. Yeah. So it's, you know, the, what, what used to be you know, a delusion or science fiction is a reality today. Wow. Is, so, so just as a, as a psychologist, explain to us why, what is paranoia anyway? Is, is some part of paranoia healthy? Well, I think I would use the term suspicious. Okay. So if we think about the, the, the core feature of being suspicious, suspiciousness is a very important human emotion. And it helps protect us. So if we're buying uh, an object from somebody, if we're not suspicious about whether it's a genuine object, we might you know, get, get ripped off. So I think in a sense, suspiciousness is a little bit like sadness. It is a normal human emotion that we all experience. It may not be pleasant, but we all experience it. So it's when suspiciousness gets pushed to the extreme, much like when sadness gets pushed to the extreme, we call it depression. Well, when suspiciousness gets pushed to the extreme, that's when you cross the line into paranoia. Mm. Now, paranoia, it's a, isn't it connected to other disorders, schizophrenia or others? Absolutely. In fact, it is found in so many different kinds of disorders. And I think that's part of the reason why we don't know much about it is it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. But it is found in, in a variety of – in alcoholism, schizophrenia, um, uh, bipolar illness. All of these have elements of, of paranoia in them. But they don't – but the paranoia itself doesn't get studied. We study alcoholics. We study schizophrenia. But we don't really focus a lot on paranoia, which is why we don't know a whole lot about it. Hmm. Wow. I mean, and it's it's – it, it, but you sense it's on the rise. I mean, just just the idea that you can go watch, you know, um, a Marvel's comic or a Transformers movie and all of a sudden think that there's these machines that are taking over the world. For somebody that's not necessarily balanced, that is a little delusional, that's got to be problematic. Absolutely. And I 
think all those other factors then come into play as well. So you walked in the movie theater and there was a security camera looking at you. Yeah. Perhaps. And of course, let's face it, people walk in the movie theaters these days without worrying about who's sitting around them. They no, that's true. Armed and, and so there's a lot. And, and again, you know, all that information immediately gets broadcast once it happens. And these kinds of things, you know, humans are, are wired to pay attention to their environment, even if they don't consciously do so. We're aware of security cameras, even if we don't focus on them. We're, you know, you look in your office, there's a paper shredder there. You recognize it's there. But part of the reason why it's there is because you're afraid that someone's going to steal something from you and exploit you. So we have all these things in our environment that are basically saying, again, it's not safe where we are. Mm. And um, I guess this is this is compounding, right? So eventually paranoia – it's one thing, I guess, to be paranoid. It's another thing to move it to, – to start moving it to actions like violence. Exactly. Uh, to talk yeah. about the talk. Give us some examples of where we've seen that. Well, and there's a number of them. I think probably the most recent one um, that was outstanding was probably Aaron Alexis, who this is the Washington Navy Yard guy who yeah. killed 12 people. Clearly had evidence of paranoia, and you can kind of go down the list. So you remember after 9/11, there was this anthrax male um, uh, yeah. concern. Well, it turns out that that guy was paranoid. He killed five people. Um, uh, Swing Cho at uh, Virginia Tech. He, there clear evidence that he was paranoid. Jared Lochner, uh, who shot um, um, the congresswoman and killed six people. And, and the list goes, kind of goes on and on, that, that these individuals, and all, one of the things that you tend to see with these individuals, and I think Cho at Virginia Tech is a good example. This is a person who felt like life was just poking him in the chest was intimidating him, taking advantage of him, and the, and, the, and the videotape that he left behind is just this paranoid rant about how he had been taken, taken advantage of, and he finally had enough. And now he was going to get back at those that had been tormenting him. Now, of course, had people been tormenting him? Probably not, yeah. not in the way that he felt it. And I think that's one of the problems with people that are paranoid is that they finally kind of get fed up and then they move into action. Or they have some type of paranoid belief that this person is going to steal their brain or something along those lines, and so they have to kill the person before their brain gets stolen. Interesting. Is, are some forms of racism paranoia? Well, and that's, a, that's an interesting, uh, you know, again, and it goes back to the issue of suspiciousness. Yeah. So we have lots of evidence that people of color are certainly being discriminated against, that they are being singled out, profiling, you know, they're right. profiled, you know, so forth. And so do people of color have elevated levels of suspiciousness? Yes. Or is it unrealistic suspiciousness? Probably not. It is very real. Very real. And unfortunately, when the case of paranoia, then, is that many of these suspicions are, are unrealistic. They are manufactured by the mind of the person who is paranoid. And it could That's go both ways, it. right? I mean, it could be, it could be, you know, certain generation whites sit paranoid that the blacks are whatever. I mean, Absolutely. You know what I mean? It, and it almost seems... It almost seems like it's not – it's almost delusional. It's not even real world. Absolutely. And, and again, I, th- I think anything that threatens our sense of safety. And so those who feel like, oh, my goodness, there is this, this rise of this particular ethnic group and they're going to take over and I'm not going to be safe any longer, well, that's going to dial up a person's level of suspiciousness. And mm. for some, it's going to push it above paranoid levels. For some, it'll simply elevate it. They'll simply be more suspicious. Man, it's um, it's such a subtle little thing, isn't it? Except as you just mentioned, the list it's it's pretty it's pretty it's impacting us in a variety of ways. 
Uh, and I think violence is, is unfortunately one of the ways that it, that is going to do so. And, you know, it goes beyond that. So if you look at polls over the last several decades, and these are done fairly regularly by, you know, na- you know national poll agencies, they find that people are less trusting overall and increasingly more angry. The government in particular were less trusting of, but many, many individuals are becoming more angry. And anger is where we tend to see violence when a person is paranoid. Man. Well, I mean, it's interesting, too. Even in the political world, you see, you know, Trump, Donald Trump's leading. And one of the big drivers behind that is that people are angry. They like somebody that will be angry for him. That's exactly right. Yeah, (laughs) he's he's pretty good at it. He's really good at it. And but then, and then too, I mean, you could, you've also seen other candidates over time that almost seem paranoid too, right? Like that there's these extreme positions, and and they have their little pet peeve position. Are, is there one? Is are you know? Is there one um, affiliation Republican Democrat that might be more prone to paranoia, or is every is it an equal opportunity problem? Yeah. I think it's an equal opportunity problem. And again, we are, you know, when we talk about paranoia, we really are talking about a pathological Yeah, clinically, condition. yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't know that there's any evidence that any particular type of, uh, of group. And, you know, what we, but again, we, we haven't studied this. this yeah, it's this, pretty this new. Yeah. So it's, we don't know a lot about it. So w- one would almost predict that perhaps people of color who have been targeted yeah. will become more paranoid. And we do have evidence, uh, there is scientific evidence to suggest that immigrant individuals tend to develop paranoia um, um, to greater degree than, than uh, uh, native residents. Interesting. And, and if you think about that, so you, you arrive in the, you know, a new country, you dress differently, you don't understand everything that people are saying about you, mm-hmm. people probably are talking about you, people probably are making you the butt of a joke, and so you start to become more and more suspicious about the, the um, you know, motives of others, and again, suspicion, when taken to extreme, then becomes paranoia. Well, and it seems like, too, then you would separate yourself from society, which probably isn't good for paranoia. <laughs> Exactly right, because I think we all use each other as a sounding board. You know, yeah. am I being crazy here, or is this going on? And when you start to isolate, then you no longer have the feedback from your environment that says, no, that's kind of wacky, don't believe that. Oh, you know what? Uh, I, I'm dying to, to get some solutions from you for what we should do when we see it in our friends and our neighbors. Um, we'll take a break. We're talking with Dr. Uh, David Laporte from Indiana University of Pennsylvania, Department of Psychology. He's a psychologist there, and he's teaching us about paranoia. He's also uh, wrote a wonderful um, article about paranoia and conspiracy theories um, and how Americans are becoming more paranoid. We'll take a break when we come back more on this interesting subject of uh, paranoia. Stick with us. We'll try to come up with some solutions for what we can do as we see uh, somebody around us that might be a little more paranoid. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Dr. David Laporte. He's a professor at Indiana University of Pennsylvania School of Psychology, and he's here to help us understand more about paranoia. I mean, really, when you think of all of the different uh, situations we've had, 
um, from the anthrax scares after 9-11, Virginia Tech, um, just so many other examples, NSA, uh, Jade Helm 15 that's going on right now down in Texas. People are paranoid and um, maybe more than normal. Uh, he's he's convinced. So he's also, by the way, written the book on it. It'll be out soon called Paranoid, Exploring Suspicion from the Dubious to the Delusional. Uh, again, Dr. David Laporte, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's great. To, it's great to have you here. What uh, what do you think? Like, is are there just certain conditions? Are there certain things that we would look for if we're looking for paranoia and or somebody that's experiencing it? Yeah, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll try to expand a little bit because I think one of the things, one of the places that we tend to find paranoia a lot is in dementia, in things like Alzheimer's. Right. So if we think about the large number of elderly, you know, the baby boomers, of course, many of us are becoming demented at this point in time. And one of the most common characteristic features, especially early on, is paranoia. It is, and again, this is not well understood, but part of it may be because the person is losing their memory. So these are people that perhaps hide some money around the house or they have some, you know, some money available, yeah. and they can't remember where they put it. So, of course, family must be stealing from them. Mm-hmm. So they become paranoid. They become paranoid of the neighbors and, and, and so forth. So it, the, the, to some extent, it depends on where you find it. You know, paranoid schizophrenia, that's still fairly rare. Most of us are not going to... Um, uh, meet people with um, that kind of condition on a daily basis, but dementia is going to be pretty common. We are going to see that a lot. Right, and and day in day out. I mean, that's probably the most common way we'll we will see some form of paranoia, right? Exactly, exactly. Now, the other thing, of course, is that people with paranoia can frequently exist relatively normally in the sense that they can have jobs. Now, they're not the most pleasant of people because if you felt like everybody was always talking behind your back and making fun of you and trying to rip you off, you would be an unhappy, unpleasant person. It's, it's just not a happy place to be. So these people are around us, but frequently they're, they're really not fun people to be around, so we mm-hmm. tend to avoid them. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're not the ones that you want at your party. Because they they'll keep bringing up all the other conspiracies, but this too this isn't a new thing. This is a natural part of of a human being is suspiciousness, and then when it when it goes too far, it becomes more of a disorder. Exactly, and and there's lots of reasons why it can go too far. Not the least of which, of course, are drugs. So that we know that amphetamines will increase certain neurotransmitters in the brain and will very reliably produce paranoia. Cocaine does the same thing. So many individuals who uh, abuse those kinds of drugs will, in fact, become paranoid. Interesting. So as drug use goes up, it's it not, not necessarily a good uh, tool to, to combat paranoia. No. In fact, it's probably creating uh, – amphetamines became really quite a popular drug a number of years ago. And I'm not sure that it's receded since, but uh, that's probably resulted in a huge number of cases. Now, the other thing, that's, and this is a kind of an interesting issue, is that we've known for a long time, and there's good research out there indicating that um, uh, marijuana, uh, cannabis, will increase paranoia. And there's some evidence to suggest that the earlier you use it and the more you, that you use it, the more paranoid you are more that you're likely to become. So now we have this national trend toward legalization of marijuana, and with it, we have to expect that there are going to be increased rates of, of, of paranoia. Hmm. Um, it, it, we, you also mentioned alcohol. Is alcohol, yeah. alcohol also is a contributor to paranoia? 
Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the, the, the you know, paranoia is on one side of a coin, and on the other side of the coin is um, jealousy. Yeah. So jealousy is a type of form of paranoia in which the person is suspicious about the motives of their partner, whether they're being faithful or not. And one of the things that you typically see, and it's called alcoholic jealousy, is that people that become alcoholic very frequently accuse their partners of being unfaithful to them. Hmm. Wow. I mean, and again, this is this can just this can just be a base of a fairly uh, innocuous, non-threatening gesture, right? It's just a little sure. jealousy. Except if you're if you're an alcoholic and you're doing this every night, and I have to deal with your jealousy, or if I have to deal with your paranoia, I mean, I, it, we need to help find the reason why somebody's expressing this. Right, and you know, I think one of the unfortunate things is let's face it: if you are a spouse of an alcoholic. And they come home, and you know they may even get violent because of uh, of their alcoholism and their jealousy, and they keep accusing you of being unfaithful. Sooner or later, you're going to get fed up with it, and in fact, you might be unfaithful because you've kind of had it with your spouse. At that yeah, point. it almost self fulfills, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Does um, so if I'm sitting there, there's the extreme cases of paranoia, which probably I would assume include more schizophrenia or other like major psychotic episodes. Yeah, and those are the ones we right. hear about in the news where somebody's shot and killed. Yes, exactly. There, there is also a, a more rare form of paranoia called a, del, a delusional disorder in which a person has this very, very narrow delusion about um, something. So um, people, for example, who believe that movie stars are in love with them. That's an example of that kind of delusional disorder. But these are people that are in many other ways completely normal until you start talking about I don't know, something like space aliens. And then, then they're, they're zeroed in and they really believe that space aliens have, have uh, you know, landed and, and half the people on the planet are now space aliens and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I guess, too, that's it. I mean, if you – if, if uh, the, like the person that, that tried to kill Ronald Reagan, right. he, he probably had a delusional disorder. You know, somewhat delusionally, that uh, if he were to shoot the president, that Jody Foster then would recognize what a great guy he was and would fall in love with him. Yeah. Um, and so that's that that twisted logic. Wow. So what do we do if we see somebody we love, somebody we care about, that's that's expressing some of this um, paranoia or delusion? How do we how do we help them without you know making worse their condition? head-on assault on their, on their paranoia probably doesn't work. You're probably not going to talk the person out of being suspicious of others. So I think that if, you, if it's a family member, you have to realize that you probably have a unique connection with this individual, and so you're in a position to help them um, uh, to make them feel better. I, I, gee, I understand that the boss at work is out to get you and that all your, your coworkers are, are just plotting against you. Let's figure out a way that we can make you feel better until they stop doing that. Something that, that, that recognizes the pain that the person's in and, and tries to help them. I think more importantly, because of some of the examples I gave earlier about violence, is that if you are a family member and you see a family member becoming more paranoid, and, and especially if you start to see them becoming more frustrated and angry, you want to remove weapons. Um, mm, yeah. Guns all over the place. Get the guns out of the house because something, something bad is going to happen. There was a, um, a case of a woman whose son was becoming more and more paranoid, and finally she did call the police, and it turns out that he had planned on 
Um, he had a huge cache of weapons, was planning on going to a local Walmart, shooting everybody up, and then taking the, the ammunition in the Walmart to continue to shoot people as they came. So oh, wow. she prevented probably tens of people being um, killed as a result of the paranoia by uh, intervening. And so I think that family have a, a unique role in all of this. Well, that's exactly what we need. Huh? And then there was the police chief or the police officer in Boston that had to turn his son in that was also had terroristic thoughts, but it seems like a lot of people that might be drawn to groups like that or other cults or other kinds of um, extreme groups might have paranoia anyway. And that's, that's a very interesting question. I think that's one that, that uh, you know, will probably be studied in the years to come is are paranoid individuals, people that believe that they are being picked out, let's say, because of their religious beliefs, that somehow the United States is, uh, is targeting those of, of the you know, uh, uh, Islamic faith, that they're going to get angry and, and perhaps join organizations to seek retribution. Yeah. I mean, it really, it's, this, this almost seems like, uh, you know, a mental health, problem of the future. And I, and I believe so. And again, I think that, that, that our, our technology around us is contributing to all this. And so, you know, the backscatter machines that, that we use at the, uh, at the airport that basically reveal everything, well, they're, they're mobile. They, you know, they can fit in the back of a van and drive around and basically see inside people's homes. Right. Um, we ha- again, we have drones flying overhead, um, you know, satellites, computer hackers. As we saw recently, it's not just computer hackers that take over your computer and steal your, you know, your passwords and so forth. They're breaking into your car now. Um, there are concerns that computer hackers can break into electronic medical devices like pacemakers and, and alter those as well. So we have lots of things in our environment that, again, can invade our sense of privacy and sense of security. Mm. Yeah. And you... Again, it's part of this is just a lot of this was going on years ago. We just didn't have as open of a community, right? We right. now have all this information, right? And I and I think the you know, important thing is that you know none of us study this kind of stuff. None of us count the number of security cameras on the way to work, right? Or, or, or you know those kinds of things. But our brains are capable of p- taking in this kind of information. And I think I think the best example of this is if we look back into the '60s. So you start in you know, 1960, you had Marilyn Monroe, who had a completely normal body type. And then, then all of a sudden, within you know, the next decade or so, you had all these models and actresses who were becoming thinner and thinner and thinner. Now, women didn't study billboards and magazine ads and so forth, but their brain took in that information. They saw those images. And what happened was is they became dissatisfied with their bodies. They started to diet, and there was, a, there was an epidemic of eating disorders. Wow. And I, and I would argue that the same thing's happening now. Our brain is taking in all these security cameras, all the news um, items, the fact that there are paper shredders everywhere, that we have you know, this, um, software, protection software, and so forth. Our brain takes all this information in, and I think what it does is it erodes our sense of safety and security, which increases our suspiciousness. Now, not all of us are going to become paranoid, but those that are biologically or genetically predisposed are more likely to become paranoid as a result of that. But the rest of us are going to feel a little bit less safe than we have, and that's what most of the polls have been demonstrating. Do do we end up, um, I mean, as we're taking this information in, it's, and, it, and it is kind of wearing us down, what are some things we could be doing just in a healthy way to mitigate our suspiciousness and to kind of remove some of that energy, that emotion? 
Well, I think relationships are always very important. I mean, we are, are, you know, we are social beings. Our brains are built to be with others. And so I think the extent to which we have uh, intimate relationships and have a social community is probably our best protection. Um, I, I, that, that's ultimately very, very important. I also think that, that um, you know, this disorder is an interesting disorder, paranoia, because people that are paranoid generally will not go in for treatment. So, if, you know, if I have depression or, or, or obsessive compulsive disorder, I am really bothered by that condition. It hurts. I want to get rid of it, so I'm going to go see somebody who's going to take it away from me. Paranoid individuals generally don't recognize that their, their thinking and beliefs are, are irrational. So from a, someone who's paranoia, the problem is not them. It is you. You are the person that is tormenting them. You're the person that's out to get them. You're the one that needs treatment, not them. Right. So these individuals, generally speaking, don't come in for treatment. So I think what we need to also do, I think a, an important place to, to, to intervene, is with primary care physicians because most people trust their primary care physician. And I think that these individuals need to be trained to be on the alert for individuals who are suffering from paranoia. They're more likely to um, uh, confide in, a, in, a, in their primary care physician. Yeah, I mean, I guess a few other questions might be very telling, right? Because it seems like a lot of people with paranoia would be willing to share their paranoia. Yes, well, at least with their primary care physician. Right. Like, yeah. So, so tell me, yeah, tell me some of your hobbies. Tell me what you do. I mean, if they're always talking about, you know, the millennium. Yes, or bear, you know, bearing, you know, or building a bunker that's going to protect them from when you know, the right. lords come to take away their guns and so forth. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and again, this is this. There is there are extremes ex- examples of this where it gets. It's just scary. It's just flat out scary. And the, and even these are paranoid people that we've that the family knew about. People knew about that they were paranoid that something wasn't right. I guess those people should just we should just report them. Well, and I think that's part of the problem because now we run up against privacy laws. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, fam- family members are in a better position. But so, and you and you read reports of this of, of people who have had fam- you know, paranoid family members who call the police and repeatedly they are told, well, until they do something illegal, we can't do anything about it. And and you see one tragedy after another of you know family that just say I tried to get the person help I called the police and over and over again they told me that um, they could not um, you know they couldn't do anything at all and then bad things happen. Yeah. Now of course from a professional standpoint if I have a patient that comes in and tells me you know that they're becoming more paranoid and I'm increasingly more worried about them. I can't say anything. I cannot violate confidentiality. So unless they tell me that they are going to harm a specific person with a specific name, I am, I am impotent. I cannot intervene. I cannot disclose anything that they've told me. And that's wow. kind of a problem. Yeah, you are handcuffed, aren't you? Yes. Well, I mean, I guess so that, that might be one of the new world areas we need to work on is how do we handle mental health you know, on a national level because there are so many stories that are getting away from us. Absolutely. And I think part of the problem, too, is that, unfortunately, I mean, violence, while it seems commonplace, it in fact is a rare event, much like suicide. And we always have difficulty in predicting rare events. So all of the scientific evidence suggests that we are terrible at predicting which individual, including which mentally ill individual, is likely to become violent or not. And Mm. so it's always going to be hard to stop the Jared. Lochners from you know walking into a crowd with a pistol and starting to shoot everybody. Right. So I mean, I guess in the end, it really is. Uh, it's it's going to be a family issue. 
I think uh, yeah, ultimately. Now, unfortunately, many paranoid individuals, as you pointed out earlier, do become isolated. They do withdraw. They protect themselves. They can't trust anybody, including family, and so they become cut off. Yeah. And so I think it's intervening early, not letting that person slip away and become isolated. That's probably important. Once, there's, once they are isolated, boy, it's going to be really hard to figure out which one is, is the time bomb ready to go off. It's so true. It really is. And again, it's, um, it seems like it's going to be more and more. So we need to maybe pay more attention and, and find ways to strengthen relationships so we can talk about it personally. And then if we can, influence the people in our lives. Absolutely. And I, I also think that making paranoia a little bit better known is to yeah. make it, you know, everybody talks about autism and all these other disorders. And I think paranoia is right up there. I think it's an interesting one. It has um, uh, major implications. It is a source of suffering for lots of individuals. And again, just think about the number of baby boomers who are going to start to become oh, demented, yeah. and, and most of them are going to suffer paranoia at some point. It's, it's a problem. No, I think I really do. I think it's great to explore it even as we have today. Dr. David Laporte, so appreciate you and good luck with the launch of your book, Paranoid Exploring Suspicion from the Dubious to the Delusional. It really is an important discussion. We always talk about the powder powder keg version, you know, of the paranoid, but really just about the Alzheimer's patient that's suffering or the one, you know, the the aging senior that has some delusions. Just that's going to impact every one of us and to know it's it's kind of a, a healthy, normal part of people's life, not healthy, but a normal part of progression um, uh, through life and through certain stages of sickness, it's important to understand. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, uh, do a little Coach's Corner, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, as part of the Coach's Corner, one of the things I wanted to just quickly talk about is, you know, we were just talking about paranoia, and mental health in general is something we're just not paying enough attention to. And yet every week we have a new story, at least, major headline of a shooting here, of, you know, a hostage situation there. You've heard of murder-suicide. You've heard of all of these different things. Uh, They all make the news. And those are all examples of mental health gone awry. So I wanted to run through a wonderful article I found on World of Psychology or and on Psych Central um, by Margarita Tartakovsky, who um, wrote uh, an article on the mental health, nine myths about mental illness and therapy. Okay, nine myths we got to keep straight. So you think about your life, your family, your relationships. Uh, myth number one, having mental illness means you're weak. The reality is, no, you know, about uh, overall, uh, every one of us are going to have some experience with mental illness, either our own or someone else's that we love and we care close, we care a lot about. You're not weak because you have mental illness. You're just normal, right? Normal people, just like you don't think people that have diabetes are weak. Mental illness is, it's, you know, it's, it could be anything from anxiety to depression, it could be um, paranoia, as we learned about just a few minutes ago. Myth number two, anyone who behaves erratically is bipolar or borderline. Don't be throwing those titles around. Those are actual clinical distinctions 
bipolar and borderline personality disorders. They're different things. And just because someone's a little erratic, it could be, you know, they're running for office. <laughs> that might be the key. Just, I mean, instead, just say, hey, are you running for office? Uh, myth number three, people with mental illness don't lead productive lives. Not true. A lot of people with high-profile uh, people with mental illness include Harrison Ford, Halle Berry, Terry Bradshaw, all uh, living with depression. So the reality is a lot of really successful people. In fact, remember, it's just a percentage of all the people have mental illness. So it's negative. People do live productive lives. Uh, myth number four, psychotherapy is like talking to a friend. Eh, kind of. But it's also like talking to an educated friend that's going to help you get maybe deeper into your issues and help you question your own you know, foundation. What's going on? Why did you – how did you get this thought going and how do you keep that thought going? So it's a powerful tool for you. Um, myth number five, seeking psychotherapy means you have serious problems. Not really. Sometimes it's just, you know, you need a little help. You need a little direction. You need to change some negative beliefs or some patterns. Myth number six, therapists tell you what to do. Uh, You know what? They don't dole out advice usually. What I've uh, found and learned is that most therapists are there to just help you notice your patterns and help create self-awareness. There are some that will also, you know, be more solution-oriented if that's what you want. A lot of times we call those coaches. Um, Therapists are really there to make sure you can break some some ties of dependency. Myth number seven, medication is enough to treat mental illness. Actually, the research shows uh, mental uh, illness, if you treat it with medication and psychotherapy, tends to work more effectively. So if you are somebody that is has a mental uh, health issue and you're only taking medication, it might be smart for you to go get some other help uh, with a therapist because that would actually double your double your benefit. Myth number eight, having a parent with mental illness guarantees you'll struggle too. Not so. You might be predisposed. You might have a tendency. You might have other corollary effects, right, secondary effects because of your parent's mental illness. But the reality is is it doesn't necessarily indicate you're going to have it. And myth, myth number nine, alcoholism and substance abuse are the result of poor lifestyle choices, Addiction is a disease, though, folks, it's, so that's not true. I mean, it could be impacted by your lifestyle, obviously, and we've talked about that on the show before, And um, but it also could be part of a mental health issue. In fact, a lot of people suffering addiction suffer with that. We're going to take a break, my friends, uh, when we come back a new hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, trying to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Man, happy son and daughter day. August third, August eleventh. Happy Son and Daughter Day. What if you don't have a daughter? Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. <laughs> Sunday. Today's Tuesday. the day to celebrate the joy of your children and that you have them in your life. So if you have children, call them today. Unless they haven't called you, then you know they'll just want money. Today's <laughs> so the day true. we celebrate it. 
Isn't that that's actually a great day? Whether sons or daughters, young or old, teenagers or toddlers, today's the day we're celebrating Son and Daughter Day. What do you have planned today? Well, I was I was going to take them out for ice cream or what? Mm, no, no. Normally, I have a class on Tuesday night, but I don't have it tonight. Oh. But maybe that's what we'll do. Good take idea. Take my kids and maybe go play a little game, something. <laughs> I don't know. I hadn't thought about it, but um, now that I know it's son and daughter day, stuff's going to get crazy. Did you hear about the astronauts are going to start chowing down? On on homegrown space food. Homegrown yeah. space food. Where And where is it? Grown down here? Yeah. Check this out. No, no. So, so on Monday, International Space Station astronauts will enjoy a fresh debut, a meal made with the first food grown in outer space. Mm. So I guess up on the space station, they've uh, been growing things. What is it? Um, I'm sure it's kale. <laughs> <laughs> what else are you going to grow up there? It's got to taste horrible. Sprouts. Uh, make sure sprouts. You can always grow sprouts. On the menu will be a salad made out of microgravity grown romaine lettuce, mm, mm. washed with a citric acid, acid sanitizer. Yum, yum. Half the lettuce will be devoured by the crew, while the other half will head back to Earth so scientists on the ground can check it out. Growing in the red lettuce, nicknamed outrageous. By the NASA scientists, weird. It was hard. It's hard to grow lettuce in space. Mm-hmm. When there's zero gravity, water doesn't seep uh, into the soil, so dirt can just float away. Way. Do you know how many times they had to figure? How many times they had to lose, you know, dirt all over the <laughs> space station? So anyway, the astronauts. Uh, by the way, there's also limited sunlight, and the roots don't know which way to grow because there's no up or down in space. The astronauts overcame these challenges by packing special pillows with soil, seeds, and stakes to help guide the roots and the plant growth. So then the, the roots could just grow down a stake, mm. not like a beef steak. But that, that wouldn't better. be bad either. <laughs> so they're going to have their first meal in space, homegrown, and sadly, it's a salad. That is sad, actually. It's it's actually pathetic. If you could grow a Twinkie, mm-hmm. now we're talking. Or if you could have just a little tree with little cheese balls on it. Mmm. <laughs> sounds yummy. Anyway, good luck to them for their, for, their first uh, space meal. That's kind of sad. But then, they, I mean, the food nowadays is pretty good. It used to not be so good. But have you ever had just like those backpacking meals? Mm-hmm. Those are yummy. MREs, I yeah. think. Is that what well, called? those, yeah, the military ones are MREs, but there's some now that are nice, really good food. Yeah. My just kids add are hot like, water and... yeah, just add a little hot water. My kids are always thinking, like, can we just buy these and eat them at home? <laughs> it's called food storage. Yeah, it's like they don't like <laughs> our food. Rude kids, but it is son and daughter day, so we won't get mad at them today. Let's shoot it over to Kathy Aiken and find out what's uh, what's in the headlines today. Kathy? Good morning, everyone. Over two dozen people were arrested during late-night protests in Ferguson, Missouri, marking the one-year anniversary of Michael Brown's death. St. Louis County Executive Steve Stanger talked about the city's state of emergency. We are trying to do everything that we can to protect life and property. And last night, it was demonstrated, 50 shots rang out, that our community has come too far and has worked too hard to be set back again. Fox News anchor Megyn Kelly says she refuses to apologize to Donald Trump after he accused her of asking unfair questions during last week's GOP presidential debate. Here was Kelly last night. 
Trump, who is the front runner, will not apologize. And I certainly will not apologize for doing good journalism. So I'll continue doing my job without fear or favor. And Mr. Trump, I expect, will continue with what has been a successful campaign thus far. This is a tough business, and it's time now to move forward. As Kelly said, Trump also refused to apologize for controversial comments he made about Kelly. But despite that, Trump is still at the head of the pack. According to a new NBC News poll, Trump leads with 23 percent of the GOP vote, followed by Ted Cruz at 13 percent. Ben Carson is at 11 and Carly Fiorina and Marco Rubio are tied at 8 percent. Former governor and current GOP presidential hopeful Rick Perry has reportedly stopped paying campaign staffers in the early primary state of South Carolina, as as well as staffers at his Austin headquarters. His campaign says Perry will still campaign hard, just on a budget, as some will work on a volunteer basis until they hope things improve. Colorado and New Mexico officials declared stretches of the Animas and San Juan rivers to be disaster areas. This after the EPA accidentally breached a dam holding back heavy metals used in gold mining last week. That mine hasn't been plugged yet and is reportedly spilling out 500 gallons of toxic water per minute. Three million gallons of the toxic water has traveled through parts of Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah. Officials announced the Animas River would be closed until at least Monday. 84 million people are at risk for severe weather today in the east coast and southeast parts of the country. Damaging winds and flash floods are possible, and a tornado could not be ruled out in New England. Flights coming into LaGuardia and JFK airports were delayed by more than an hour. And Matt, a 91-year-old retired oral surgeon has been charged with importing cocaine into Australia. Australia hidden in soap. What? Police say Victor Twartz was scammed by a group of people he befriended online before his twip, trip. Twor, twip. Twip. The trip that Twartz went on <laughs> says he met people in New Delhi, and as he was about to board his flight back to Sydney, he was handed a bag that he was told contained gifts oh. for someone in Australia. Mm-hmm. Those gifts were 27 packages of soap that tested positive for cocaine. The man faces a possible life sentence if convicted. Don't, Don't they say never they take say. anybody else's bags? Hello? Yeah. I mean, I'm too lazy to take my own bags. <laughs> <laughs> if Let alone anyone me, else's. Like, but what if they paid you? Hey, here's 100 bucks. Will you just carry this and leave it at the gate or whatever? Oh, never. man. Yeah, not for a life sentence. 91-year-old. No. 91-years-old, so – yeah, life sentence. If I think convicted. he was duped. He was totally. He says he was duped, but come on, twenty-seven packages of soap. I mean, can you really trust a ninety-one-year-old man that he's not a cocaine addict? <laughs> Formal oral surgeon, you know. Come I on. mean, you know, maybe it all started when he was an oral surgeon. <laughs> Wasn't that just Had sad, too much of that tragic? Gas. Yeah, yeah. It's, too he much did. laughing gas. You know the, um, but that also shows you just one dumb mistake, huh? Yeah. yeah. Who do you Good trust thing he's anymore? Ninety-one. If you're I know. Really- I mean, a life sentence for him. Yeah, yeah. What is that? Yeah, just never take anyone else's bags. They say that at the airport. Let's tell that. Let's tell that to Ben because he's traveling in two days. Ben, Ben, don't ever take anybody's packages, especially from Matt. That's right. I've already collected the money for it, though. So okay, you better check. Let me just do this then. Check before you bet. You can take that back. But when you come back, I I would suggest you bring lots of chocolate um, macadamia macadamia nut chocolate from Hawaii. Oh, I have that in my house. Really? That's probably probably something you have every day, right? Why don't you bring it here? I mean, a lot of people would bring it here and share it with the team. I thought that was just a normal thing to have chocolate macadamia. No, it is. It totally is. That's why I bring it here. You're leaving when? Wednesday is my last day, so tomorrow. Wow. Do we have a replacement yet? No. 
So we're, you and I are just going to try to figure yep. it out. <laughs> they just said push the buttons, move it up push and down. Push this one. Don't push this one. Yeah, I think we do have a replacement in training. But they won't be anything like Ben. And tomorrow, let's have a little party. Tomorrow's your last day forever or just two weeks? For a while. For two weeks, okay. yeah. But, right. you, but let's have a party tomorrow. You bring oh, the macadamia yeah. nuts. I'll bring bagels. I'll bring water. <laughs> That's all? No juice or something. I'll bring tang. <laughs> I'll bring some tang, Good. which is just water and tang, bagels, and macadamia nuts. Sounds yum, yum. like a party. Yeah. You'll bring bagels. Okay, Ben, get the macadamia nuts. I've got some almonds too, chocolate almonds. I'll bring those. Well, that'd be good. Yeah, having a party. See how easy that is? A little, a little celebration for Ben's farewell. Again, because we're celebrating Son and Daughter Day, and Ben feels like he's my little baby. My cute little baby. I've got a great uh, guest coming up joining us. David Bradford will be joining us, and he is going to teach us how to up your game, right? Six timeless principles for networking your way to the top. David Bradford just basically say, you know, he's an average dude that worked his way up into the leadership as CEO of two of the country's top 50 tech companies. He's been on boards with Steve Wozniak. I mean, it's a big deal. And he's here today to teach us um, how we can, uh, you know, start to network our way to the top. Stick with us, folks. Uh, great, great guest coming up. David Bradford up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, what would you say is the most valuable asset to your company or your business? Uh, Is it just the newest high-tech gadget? Is it the fantastic social media interface that you've got? Is it your rocking break room room with your ping-pong table, your pool table? Did you ever think that your greatest uh, asset to your company might be the people in your life? We all know that networking is important, but for some of us, it can actually be intimidating. Our guest today is is Mr. David Bradford. He's been called by some the most connected man in the world. He's here to talk about his new book, Up Your Game, Six Timeless Principles for Networking Your Way to the Top. He joins us now. Mr. Bradford, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, Matt. Great to be with you. Great to be with you and uh, excited to have you on the show. I mean, you've done this... You're the real deal. You've kind of gone, I guess, not rags to riches, but just average to riches, um, and even to the point that you've led two of the country's top 50 companies. How how did you do it? Well, uh, it's all about people. I like to talk about uh, a 60-30-10 rule that I've developed over the years. It's very simple, that uh, 60% of the success of any organization relates to its people. Fundamentally, its people is the number one asset of any company. 30% certainly relates to technology and uh, the clever stuff that you innovate on. And 10%, frankly, is just dumb luck. Yeah. But at the end of the day, what drives everything is people. Isn't that interesting? And interesting, too, because people are what buy the tech. It's what creates the IP, right? It's what... 
You, so you have to even so really ninety percent of this is going to be the people and the tech that they create or the IP, the intellectual property they create. You bet. And so if that's true, if people are such an essential asset to any business organization, where should your focus be? I've always said that the CEO's primary role should be as CTO. That doesn't stand for chief technology officer. It stands for chief talent officer. Hmm. And so you've always got to be looking to surround yourself with great individuals. Do do we do that naturally, or is that – I mean, it seems like a lot of executives might uh, not want people that intimidate them around them. Well, I think the best CEOs in the world always look for the greatest talent. I, I was always impressed. I, I had our battles over the years, Novell versus Microsoft, et cetera. But the thing that always impressed me about Gates and his organization up there in Redmond, Washington – is that Bill was never afraid to hire the smartest people. Mm. Um, and he did. And when, when you met people at Microsoft, they were sharp, uh, they were uh, progressive, innovative, et cetera. And so I was always impressed uh, that great CEOs will go out of their way to fill holes. One of the things I discovered, Matt, over time, uh, being a CEO, is not every CEO knows everything about every subject. We tend to kind of idolize those people and we put them up on a pedestal. But the truth of the matter, Matt, is that I don't. I have my blind spots. I have a lot of them. Yeah. And so I've got to build people around me that can fill those uh, dark holes, if you will. And you, you would, you'd know what your blind spots are by act by accident, or how would you go about as an executive figuring out where you were blind? Well, listen. Um, we can't be educated in all areas, Matt. Um, I'm not a computer scientist by training. Now, I've been in the computer industry since 1980, and so uh, huh. 35 years now. And so I've picked up a lot, but I'm not an electrical engineer. I'm not a software programmer. And so I need people around me that can fill those you know, uh, weaknesses. Eric Schmidt, on the other hand, chairman of the board of Google, etc. Now renamed Alphabet just today. Um, Eric was a technologist. He was a great visionary CEO in terms of the tech itself. So he had to surround himself with people that were outgoing, communicative, sorry about that, and people that could relate to others. And so he had a few blind spots, and he filled those in magnificently. Talk about um, – because you, you really moved up to being CEO of two high-tech companies, top 50. And, um, but how did, you, how did you kind of do that? How did your, your relationships through life get you there? Oh, my gosh. Uh, when I think back on Fusion I.O., uh, it, it started uh, six years before I ever joined the company. And uh, some fellow uh, from Silicon Valley, his name was Don, he came out to Utah, and he wanted to connect with a series of venture capitalists in the area. Well, I didn't know Don, so I took him to lunch and got to know him. He was a Ph.D. in uh, software uh, or electrical engineering from Stanford. I was fascinated by his background. We had a nice chat. And after the chat, I said, well, listen, this is a guy I want to help out. So I took him around to uh, all the local venture capital firms in the state of Utah. We had a nice interchange. I didn't think anything about it, Matt, again for six years. 
I get this call back from Don six years later, and he says, Dave, I found this great company in Salt Lake City. It's called Fusion IO. He says, I'm CEO of the company now. I'd like you to come up and join our advisory board. I went up, met the founders, Rick White and David Flynn, got to know them, liked their approach to solving a, a critical technology problem. And six months later, I found myself as CEO. Hmm. And so, you know, it started with giving without any thought of getting. He came to me, said, hey, can you introduce me to VCs in the area? I did, took him around for a day, got to know him, et cetera. And then six years later, the, the law of reciprocity came into being in the universe when Don called me back and said, hey, come take a look at this new company. And you become, I mean, I guess you become friends in a way. You also just become like mutually respecting, you know, business people. Oh, yeah, over time. And by the way, one of the points I make in my book is to be a stand-up person. I talk about these six up principles. Well, one of those principles is to be a stand-up person. And, you know, you can observe every other uh, principle in my book, but if you are not a person of character, if you're not a person that can be trusted, then no one's going to want to do business with you, regardless of how connected or outgoing or nice or whatever you may appear to be on the surface. You have to be fundamentally a person of character. And then once that instantiates and people understand that you're trustworthy, and everything in the relationship accelerates. Wow. And, and it was it in Fusion EO that you were the CEO that employed Steve Wozniak? Yeah. One of yes. Apple's co-founders. Yes, that was a crazy story. And, you know, it starts with doing a, a favor for a, a friend, a neighbor, uh, that wanted me to go to lunch with his son-in-law. Went to lunch with his son-in-law. The son-in-law invited me uh, to come speak at a conference. And I said, well, where's the conference? He said, Sun Valley, Idaho. I looked at Google Maps, and it looked like it was a five-hour drive one way from Provo. And I'm thinking to myself, do I really want to do that? And I says, well, I'm going to do the guy a favor. I drive up to Sun Valley, Idaho, give my speech. Lo and behold, Wozniak is on the same podium <laughs> later that day. And he, I sit next to his executive assistant. I get to know Julie. Julie runs up, introduces me to Waz after the speech. We got to know each other, and I invited him to, to join the Fusion IO advisory board. Wow. He did, and soon thereafter became our chief scientist. Little Salt Lake City company, having the founder or the inventor of the Apple computer joining the company. <laughs> Crazy. Amazing, and it really was kind of a fluke. You go up, you meet his assistant, and you, but you didn't waste that opportunity either. You just got to know her, and then she hooks you up with the Waz. Exactly. That's cool. And it's all about following up. Once you make that connection, then you've got to follow up. That's another one of my up That's another up. to follow up, right? So you got to be a stand-up person, a person of character, but you also have to then follow up and kind of deliver on what you've promised. Absolutely. He handed me his business card, which I still have in my wallet today sitting next to me here. And it's a metal business card. It's it's the most interesting business card you've ever seen. But I took his email and uh, emailed him that night after our initial meeting and said, uh, fascinated by your background, et cetera. He did a double check on me, I later learned, 
uh, about my early days at Novell and some people I'd connected with and worked with at Novell, a uh, fellow by the name of Sean Nunley. And Sean gave me a big thumbs up and says, yeah, if you can work with Bradford, that would be great. And long story short, he did. So, Well, I mean, I guess that tells you, too, how important your character is because just just the background check, you know, just the rechecks people are going to do on, on you are going to go back to relationships you had years ago. Right. Absolutely. It's powerful. And, you know, uh, people that are listening to this, they go, oh, gosh, he was connected to this guy, that guy. I don't mean to sound, you know, like, oh, my gosh, I've done all this great stuff. Anybody listening to the show, honestly, Matt, can be a great networker. It simply starts with being curious about other people, asking about them, showing interest in them. And as you do that, what happens, the person begins to reciprocate. Oh, he's interested in me. And people like to talk about themselves. And so what then happens is they begin to say, hey, I should be asking this person a few questions about their background, what their business experience is, et cetera. And then the conversation naturally moves forward. Man, so, that's, be I mean, curious. be curious. And, and uh, it's, it's such a basic concept. People like to talk about themselves. Um, we're continuing this discussion with David Bradford. We're going to take a break, come back. On the other side, I want to find out uh, more of his tips from his book, Up Your Game, Six Timeless Principles for Networking Your Way to the Top. And uh, just find out more, folks. This is, you have a business leader here, right? Somebody that's done it. And it doesn't mean, um, you know, you don't need to go meet Wozniak from Apple, but you do need to live some of these very basic principles. They're going to help us to uh, have that benefit of reciprocity where we get paid back eventually for our curiosity, for our character. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back right here on Sirius XM 143. back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the line is David Bradford, author of the book Up Your Game, Six Timeless Principles for Networking Your Way to the Top. He also uh, he served as Chief Executive Officer and Chairman of Fusion EO, I believe it's called. And um, under that uh, leadership, he was named number one innovation up-and-comer in the world. I mean, which is a big deal. Think of all of the companies that are innovating and um, today's guest is uh, was one of the he really is one of the top up and comers in the tech world, and but he he's here to say it's not it's not him per se it's some very timeless principles he's been using. Uh, David Bradford, welcome back to the show. Matt, great to be with you again. Thanks. You bet. Good to have you. And so some of the principles you've already taught us is if we're going to network, we have to do a few things. You call them the the six up principles, but one of them is is uh, stand up, be the kind of person of character, you know, so people can trust in you. Another one was follow up, deliver on your promises. You were also right. teaching us before the break about the importance of being curious. What What are some other keys to networking, that just the average Joe, if we just would go network better, we'd probably be able to, to have more opportunities in life. 
I would say that uh, the first thing you've got to think about is to flip networking on its ear. So many people hear that word and go, oh, it's, it's evil or it's you know inappropriate or I shouldn't be doing that. You've got to flip it on its ear and say networking is all about thinking first of the other person. And so principle number one that I talk about in my book is to show up in life. You have to show up and be heard. But when you show up, think first of the other person. So when you're sitting in that business conference, look around the room. Look at why those people are there. Think through how you can help them. What connections do you have in your business or personal life that can bless them? to help them out and achieve their goals. As hmm. you think about the other person first, you're going to be a successful networker. And that, I mean, that's just selflessness, right? So it almost changes your demeanor. If I'm trying to get something from somebody, they're going to know that on some level versus right. if I'm trying to give exactly. you something. We're all transparent, right? Yeah. And so if you approach them with, I ge- and it's got to be genuine, you know. If right. it comes from a place where where it's not genuine, then people see through that as well. But if you have a ge- genuine desire to assist and help and bless the lives of other people, they're going to see that. They're going to want to help you as well. And I guess I mean, part of that is really create almost an open network. So my network is open to anybody that I know. And right, right. and, and let know, them in. I went out. I, I looked at your LinkedIn profile today. And yeah. by the way, if you're not on LinkedIn and you're listening to the show, come and find uh, David Bradford and Matt Townsend on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that I noticed about what you have done on your LinkedIn profile, it explains your background very, very well. But what it does, too, is I see all of those endorsements. I see all of those recommendations yeah. that you've received over time. And when I see that, Matt, I go, okay, this is a person I want to be connected to. Uh, he surrounded himself with other great people. And, oh, by the way, they're endorsing him. Yeah. And you know what's interesting about the whole thing, David, is I I don't even do that. I'm not even smart about that. It's just that but that I guess because I, I provide a service when I talk that's just more I, – I just am passionate about it and I want to help people. So this whole idea of wanting to help – makes other people come find me, and then they give me testimonials. I don't even ask for them, but I should. If I would ask for them, I'd have a lot more. But it's amazing. I totally believe when you show up and you care more about others and, and want to help others, it's it really drives passion. Absolutely. Yeah, you bet. That's a cool principle. So that's the first principle, show up. And then what's the next principle? Well, you follow up. Uh, you link up, and, and one of the secrets of my link-up principle that you can read about more in the book is that I have 90 different categories that I use to categorize people. So, Matt, when I connect with you on LinkedIn, when I connect with you on Gmail, I have categories that I put you in. So you would fall into the category of LDS. You would fall into the category of um, social media. You would fall into my category of consultant advisor. And so those kind of three areas yeah. where I would put you. And so then when I need a consultant or advisor, or I need someone who's a social media expert, whatever it might be, I'm able to go to that category and pull up 300 people that are experienced in social media, people with whom I've had an interaction in the past. Mm-hmm. And so it's all about, for me, 
creating those categories. And so people, you know, it takes time, it takes some effort, but if you'll do that, if you set up categories, it will really be a big help to you as you expand uh, and nurture your network. Well, and as a tech guy, you, you you like LinkedIn. I mean, you need some technology to network through. So it's either going to be your email or some app like Facebook or LinkedIn, but you, you really do like LinkedIn. Well, I use LinkedIn a lot. I have about 14,000 connections on LinkedIn. Um, and, and those are all people, well, I'm not going to say all, but for the most part, people with whom I've had some interaction in the past and I always vet my LinkedIn requests. I get a lot of them every day. And I look at people, and I look to see who they're surrounded by, right? And that tells me a lot about yeah. them and their character, et cetera. And, and, you know, we talk about LinkedIn. We talk about Facebook today. But the whole book emphasizes the timeless principles of connecting and forming and building deep relationships because – the tools of social media are going to change. Ten years from now, LinkedIn, honestly, will be something of the past. I hate to say that. It's a great platform. But ten years from now, we'll be communicating and connecting and building relationships entirely different ways via technology. But the timeless principles of building, communicating, those things don't change. Mm. So really, if you if you've got the principles, kind of the universals, and they're part of your character, they're part of your makeup. You're saying then then you'll be able to weather the changing tech. Exactly. And oh, by the way, people look at this, and you know, um, I, I'll, I'll mention one other principle that I talk about in, in the book, and it's to scale up your network. How do you scale it up? Well takes hard work. Note the word network is not netty. Yeah. It's not net goof off. Yeah, net it's easy. Network. Yeah. Right. It takes time. It takes commitment and so forth. Just like anything else. It's that old 10,000 hour principle that uh, Gladwell talks about in his book Outliers. Right. Do, do, I guess that's the key. And is that the difference between the ones that kind of make it? Are they're the ones that are the that are willing to put in the effort to build the network um, instead of just hoping that you know some one guy is going to fall out of the sky and make their day? Well, I call them the five percenters, right? It's those people in life that go that extra mile, that take the extra effort that the average person doesn't do. Right. Most people will think about, oh, I need to send Mary some flowers. I know she's had some bad times in her life. Oh, my cousin Bob, who I haven't seen in four years, it's his birthday. What can I do for him? Whatever it might be, it's that little thing. And, and those thoughts pass through our minds. It's only 5% of us, frankly, maybe 10% that actually act on those thoughts. Yeah. I should do that. I should connect, et cetera. And it's those people that follow up the five percenters that are extraordinary and really are great at networking. What you? I know you wrote another um, uh, book, or you talk about your bottle cap experience. What is that <laughs> right. about? Well, listen, I grew up in uh, Burbank, California, just after uh, World War II ended. And so wars were all on our mind and strategy and so forth. And we didn't have video games back then. We had to find other ways to amuse ourselves. We didn't have any money. And so I found bottle caps on the road. And as I would find these cool bottle caps, 
I would press them on their side, and um, as I would press them on their side, they would stand up. My brother taught me to build barricades around them, and then we stole my mother's metal um, vacuum hose, and we would roll marbles down toward <laughs> those bottle caps, and they would bam into the uh, wooden barricades, and some would knock over, some would stand. And so, um, yeah, um, my my sister uh, later, many years later, uh, who's married uh, to Tim Powers, the former BYU swim coach for 38 years, uh, I was at a conference speaking, oh, some two years ago, and my sister introduced me at this conference, and she says, my brother, and she got a little emotional, and she, she said, he's the bottle cap <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's cute. She remembered yeah. about me. She didn't care about all the other things I did right. in my life. Well, I mean, again, you were just the average Joe, and then living some some real you call them principles, but universal truths, right? Some laws made it so you right. could kind of weave your way through Novell and its weird history. I mean, <laughs> it, I mean, I mean, it was a really you, you've you've kind of maneuvered your way through a lot. Well, let me be clear on Novell, by the way. Novell, from 1985 to 1995, was one of the four largest computer software companies in the entire world. At one point, Novell had a market value that exceeded that of all five major U.S. airlines combined. Wow. It was a hot company in its day. And, yeah, over time, we experienced, uh, you know, uh, you know, some mistakes that we made along the way, and eventually uh, the company got sold and so forth. But, by the way, there's still 400 software engineers in Provo, Utah, that work for yeah. Novell. So it's still... Well, it was a major yeah. competitor. I mean, you, didn't you buy WordPerfect? We did buy WordPerfect. Which was a big competitor to Microsoft, right? Right, right. And that the big four at the time were Novell, WordPerfect, Lotus and Microsoft, and we always felt, Ray Norda, our CEO, felt like in order to compete long-term with Microsoft, we needed to acquire some software applications. Uh, we had the network operating system that was highly successful, but we needed to acquire those, what we call today as apps, yeah. and one of those big apps was email and uh, so forth, and so WordPerfect had that, and they were the world leaders, so we combined the two entities, and they were both located, of all places, in Provo, Utah. Yeah. And I might just say that what a, what a legacy those two companies uh, oh, yeah. left in the state of Utah. I well, and you maneuvered some pretty tough times. I mean, you were. I mean, that's Microsoft taking off, and you guys, you stayed competitive. And <laughs> well, listen, we've got to do a whole other interview about the uh, Novell Microsoft Wars and <laughs> the interesting characters that I met along the way there. The man who should have been Bill Gates was a fellow by the name of Gary Kildall. If you ask your listeners who is Gary Kildall, none of your listeners would know, but they would all know the Gates name. Gary Kildall is the man who should have been Bill Gates. He was the true inventor of the personal computer operating system. Really? Isn't, Separate story. Yeah, yeah. Whole other story, isn't it? So as we wrap this up, give us what, – what would you say – you know, for the for the let's just say kind of a middle manager, a guy that's driving to work right now, he's he's he wants to he's aggressive, he wants to kind of grow, make things happen, but he he seems to keep running into walls of life. What would what would you tell him is the one thing he really needs to stay focused on? 
or she? Well, what I would do when he gets to the office is I would go to his manager and simply begin asking questions about his manager's background. How did his manager get to where he was? How did he start out? What The question I always like to ask, one of my favorites, is what's the biggest business problem facing you today, and how can I help you succeed at that? As a CEO or a high-level manager, I would love one of my subordinates to come in and ask me that question because I have things that keep me up at night. And if this person, if this individual, if this young lady, if this young man can help me solve those problems, I'm going to be indebted to them. Oh, yeah. That's a great question. And, and And then you go help, you partner with your boss to help fix those issues. Fix those business problems. And then three years later, five years later, that boss is going to be now CEO at AT&T or whatever it might be. And they're going to call on you again because you blessed their lives. You did them a favor. Yeah. Well, great advice. I really appreciate your insight again. David Bradford and his new book, Up Your Game, Six Timeless Principles for Networking Your Way to the Top. And again, go find him on LinkedIn. Um, and also, if you just Google David Bradford, uh, you'll get to his Wikipedia page. Lots of great stuff. Uh, lots of great stuff that, that he's offering. And folks, too, it's there should be hope here, right? This is... This isn't just a a pure luck thing. 10%, he would say, is luck. 90% are your relationships in your business setting and what you can do with those relationships, the technology you can create, the the intellectual property you'll create. Good stuff. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, do a little Coach's Corner, uh, give you a little tool set, some other ideas to help you uh, network. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show. It really is about people. When you think about it, your business success is it's about just knowing the right person at the right time and then being willing to take advantage in, uh, of your opportunities in life. And that's hard to hear because if, if you're born into a family that doesn't necessarily know everybody, right, you feel like man, I don't have a shot because I don't know anybody and my dad doesn't know anybody and my mom doesn't know anybody. So there, there is a benefit to just being born into a, you know, a family that is just in the know. And I, I'm amazed looking just at my own wife, for example. She knows everybody. We can't go anywhere without her knowing somebody, <laughs> which is it's interesting because Hello, I'm on the radio. I'm on TV. Hello. And yet she knows everybody. And one of the things I've noticed is it's because she networks. And she's not networking to really get anything. She just likes people. So is there an advantage to liking people. I mean, we live in a very interesting society, especially in the United States, where being an extrovert is probably a huge advantage, right? Being somebody who's more outwardly focused 
is a huge advantage. And if you're an introvert, you probably don't self-promote very well. And so think about that. If you struggle with networking, it might be very possible that you're an introvert. You just would rather go home. I've been trying to push my son to go. uh, He's going to college, and uh, he's actually going to go to BYU. But he's thinking, maybe I'll just live at home and then commute down. And um, my daughter's like, no, you really need to go down there and be a part of the whole experience and, you know, get in and wear your blue and go to the games. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that next semester, but not this next. I'll do that in December. And I keep pushing him. You really got to go. You really got to go. You really got to go. You'll get there. But I can't push him to go. But I look at that and I think maybe, you know, some people are just more likely to be, you know, an introvert and hang back and not go network. So I don't want anybody to think if you're an introvert, you can't network because you can. But maybe the place you ought to network that it might be a little easier for you is instead of going to a cocktail party. If you're an introvert, it might be easier to just get online. Right. And get on LinkedIn or get on one of the networking sites and and kind of use email or other methods to contact people that aren't maybe as seemingly as intrusive for you. But I want you to be thinking about it because um, don't think success just comes because you're smart or you've got a degree. I've seen a lot of people get great degrees, but they still can't get a job. And I've seen people that have no experience or even skills get the jobs. So we, we, at some point, you're going to have to extend yourself, as David Bradford was, was teaching us. At some point, you're going to have to risk extending um, a little bit out there to, uh, to get to know people. And again, I'm a big believer that there's power in what happens between you and I, whether it's on the radio. If you continue to listen to the show, it's because something happened between the show and you. There was a relationship that was created there. I call that the space between us. And if the space between us is valuable and additive, you want to continue to listen. If we, if the space between us isn't valuable and additive to you, you pull away. Same is true in our marriages. Same is true in our families. There's a space between, and most of us don't pay attention to the space between your wife and yourself until the space is corrupted and polluted and she's driving away in your car, and she's done, then inevitably everybody wants to focus on that space. The crazy thing is that space is always available to us. It's always in play. So really, as we're talking about networking, as we're talking about relationships or conflict resolution, we're always talking about what's happening between the space between you and I. And I would just suggest that all of us need to get better at working in that space with the people that we care about. As soon as we can do that, things change. When you are really good at working with other people, then it almost doesn't matter. You don't have to have the right person in the space. You can go in the space and change and create the relationship that needs to be created for every person. So get the skills to deal with other people. I always teach there's four of them. Character, which is what David Bradford mentioned, Communication, cooperation, and change. Character is your ability to build trust. Communication, your ability to understand. 
cooperation, your ability to build mutual benefit where you benefit and I benefit, keep us both motivated, and change. What's the most important thing you need to change today to have more character, communication, cooperation? Four basic principles that I use in that space between you, me, and everybody. Character, communication, cooperation, change. That's it. That's the Coach's Corner. We're done! We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Whole new hour. Next hour. Great topics coming up. Great insights. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you live longer and love stronger. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Third hour of Townsend Palooza. Welcome to the program. Man, it's uh, it's been a great show. We've been learning a lot. Again, the, the goal of the show is to help you get the tools you need, need, the information you need to grow a healthy, happy life for you, your family, your loved ones, everybody. We always try to focus on different areas, right? Your ability to live, to make a living, to, to live a healthy life, your ability to love, your relationships, the people that matter most to you, and your ability to lead and to lead a legacy, the kind of legacy you want uh to have your children, your grandchildren follow. Really interesting story. If you saw it, there was a viral um, couple, a couple that sent out a viral video. They're big YouTubers, I guess. And they, they sent out this video and their names are Sam and Nia. And they were pregnant. And actually he had tricked his wife and he, cause he wanted to figure out she had, she, had been sick, uh, and she, you know, she didn't want to find out if she was pregnant. But he was like thinking he's she's he's pretty sure she's pregnant. So he went in, did a little sample, found out it was a kind of a weird story, but the whole thing's on video. And he got uh, he did a sample out of the toilet, checked her pregnant, did a pregnancy test on it, bought a boom, and this was all on video. Found out she's pregnant. Super excited. Then he went in, and she, they already have two children, and he went in and. Eventually surprised her, told her she was pregnant. It was all on video. They posted it. They were so excited. And then I think just a couple days later, found out that that they had lost the baby. The baby had miscarried. So they'd had this incredible YouTube video that went viral. And I think it got up to like 12 million views or something. It just took off. And everyone was celebrating them. And then imagine the next day, you find out you miscarried. So then they had to do the miscarriage video. It was so hard and traumatic. It's such a weird thing that um, – and my daughter's pregnant. And so now I'm sitting here, but we weren't allowed to say anything. And we knew for a while, but you, you don't say anything. You got to wait. You got to wait. And so I sit there and I think, man, this whole YouTube phenomenon is going to end up ruining a lot of people. A lot of relationships. In fact, you remember Mark Zuckerberg and his uh, wife, they ended up, they had some miscarriages too. So when they finally got pregnant, they made big announcements about not just the baby, but the miscarriages. Is social media the place that we're going to be making all these announcements now? I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing. And then you also have to deal with some of the repercussions as well. So, man, just a shout out to Sam and um, Nia. Our prayers are with them. That's just 
traumatic. It's a traumatic way to go down. But then Kathy was just telling me about a really interesting picture. Or uh, did you see a picture? Yeah, it of was a, a picture. Mom. Mm-hmm. It was a skeleton of a Chinese woman, apparently, who had was protecting her. They say it was a son uh, during an earthquake. Like 4,000 years ago. Holy cow. And it was preserved where she was – looks like almost she was in a sitting, crouching position holding like – surrounding protecting. this, protecting this infant. It was fascinating. I mean completely preserved. It was totally fascinating. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I, I have a picture of a monk doing the – meditating in the lotus position, but he's mummified. Mm. So he must have died wow. doing his prayers, his meditation, and was perfectly – perfectly retained mm. i mean it's it's amazing um but is that not the mother the mama bear i mean you don't just go announcing if you're going to get a baby here you're going to die protecting it mm-hmm. but you don't go announcing your baby too early do you no i, I know a the, lot of people the they, they wait to, i think at least until you hear the heartbeat now is that, is I that the rule? did it say on there they heard the heartbeat no. i couldn't remember no. i didn't remember okay they announced it right after he took a Test out of the toilet, but the but the um, miscarriage was that uh, no, before the, uh, or after? No, I think the, the miscarriage was just a few days okay, after so that. Okay, so they didn't so hear it was the all pretty Yeah, new. I know a lot of people will wait until that until yeah. they hear the heartbeat and feel that it's it's started and yeah. that, you know life is going and and, and the people like that. that are shy though they may wait until the kid's first birthday to announce it. <laughs> that could be. <laughs> they just want to they make sure make they're going to sure for so, sure. Some don't even want to make sure it's going to just live. Yeah. Some want to make sure that they want to keep it. Right. Yeah. Having never had a miscarriage, I can't I can't imagine. Um, the devastation of oh, that, especially hard. when you're so wanting a child, yeah. that would be that would be very sad. It really is really a hard time, I'm sure. And again, you sit there and you think about that, like people are just having so much angst getting their babies here, yes. and then we have all these other discussions going on in politics about right. everything, everything else. Yeah. So anyway, life matters, folks. Life matters. Hey, let's get started on the show. Coming up in a bit, though, uh, Frank Ninavaji will be joining us. He's going to be talking about the archaeology of misbehavior. And really, he's going to teach us that there are some hidden emotions that that exist behind misbehavior, and we need to learn to dig deeper. So when we see something going on with one of our kids, don't just take it at face value. Dig deeper and go find out what's what's really driving that misbehavior. We'll get into that with Frank in just a few minutes. But before we do, let's go to Kathy Aiken and find out what's going on in the headlines. The EPA says toxic waste has traveled more than 100 miles through parts of Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah. Three million gallons of waste escaped after the EPA accidentally breached a dam holding back heavy metals used in gold mining. This happened last week. That mine hasn't been plugged yet and is reportedly spilling out 500 gallons of toxic water per minute. Ryan Flynn from New Mexico's Environment is angry. We were really frustrated with with EPA. Well, first and foremost, they didn't tell us about it for 24 hours. And so that's just unacceptable. Colorado and New Mexico officials declared stretches of the Animas and San Juan rivers to be disaster areas. The unrest in Ferguson, Missouri continued last night as police arrested dozens of protesters during a fourth straight night of unrest, though officials say no shots were fired. This coming after demonstrations took place on the anniversary of Michael Brown's death. Here's St. Louis County Executive Steve Stanger. There is a small group of people out there that are intent on making sure that we don't have peace that prevails. Adding to the confusion was a group called the Oath Keepers, where all members are former military, police, and first responders. Ferguson is under a state of emergency. 
13 rowers on the 40-member U.S. team got sick at the World Junior Rowing Championships in Rio de Janeiro, raising concerns about water issues there. A, two weeks, a study two weeks ago revealed water quality in the water venues for next year's Olymp- Olympic Games in Rio showed high levels of viruses and bacteria from human waste. While some feel the Americans were sickened by the water in the lake, others say it could have been from water bottles in the boats or food or drinking water they had before the competition. Nearly 1,400 athletes will compete in the waters around Rio next summer. According to the latest NBC News poll, Donald Trump still has a comfortable lead after last week's debates. Trump is on top with 23 percent of the GOP vote, followed by Ted Cruz at 13 percent. Ben Carson at 11 and Carly Fiorino and Marco Rubio are tied with 8 percent. Jeb Bush and Scott Walker are back at 7 percent. Former governor and current GOP presidential hopeful Rick Perry has reportedly stopped paying campaign staffers. This includes staffers at his Austin headquarters as well as in the early primary state of South Carolina. His campaign says Perry will still campaign hard for the nomination just on a budget. And Matt, over 150 people in an East London apartment had to spend the night in an emergency shelter. Uh That's because an unexploded 500-pound war bomb (gasps) was unearthed near where where builders were working. World War II. Yes, to convert a former factory into luxury flats. One woman, she said... The bomb was 10 feet away from her flat, but she figures she's had so many parties that if it was going to blow up, it would have done so by now. Oh, yeah. We have partied so hard, that thing would have gone off by now. (laughs) You know, that that loud uh, disco music will do it. (laughs) The Ministry of Defense has been delicately attempting to remove the bomb they think was dropped during the Blitz of 1941. Holy cow. Can you imagine 10 feet away from your flat, a 500-pound war bomb? What, some guys like made a table out of it. It's just, what is that? What is I love that? the base of your table. What is that? That's a 500 pound bomb from the Blitzkrieg. Can you imagine Blitzkrieg? though trying to delicately remove that thing and oh, try to, heavens. I don't know, make sure it doesn't blow up? See, people don't, like my family uh, live out kind of in the West Desert mm-hmm. where we have a depot that's an army right, depot. Yes. Right? Right. Which is, by the way, where a lot of the nuclear, not nuclear, but a lot of the uh, chemical weapons mm-hmm. from are the stockpile stored. are stored right. here, mm-hmm. right here in the West Desert. <laughs> but I remember going out to visit them and they'd say, oh, my heck, I got a new job. And you'd be like, what? Well, I we go out into the desert where they do practice drills with airplanes and drop bombs and we look for unexploded ordnance. Oh, that's a fun job. And I'm like, oh, okay. So what do you do when you find it? <laughs> oh, we just mark it and walk away. <laughs> Run away. I'm like, like, but it. it's a great job for teens. Oh. Because you get out, you get to see nature. Wow. And you get to go near unexploded ordnance. So you could have your kids go doing that next so, summer. That's to me, this is over. nothing. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, it's just a bomb that's unexploded in some house in London. Well, let's hope they have good health insurance. Those yeah, are totally. out in the West Desert. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. That's in the old days. They wouldn't do that anymore. Okay. Now they would, you know, they hire professionals. Doing they'd have it. professional. Actually, they'd have military personnel professionally trained <laughs> on the on the dole. De- detonating yeah. bombs. Detonating bombs. And um, man, that's scary. Be careful if you're in England, <laughs> and don't make it into a table. It's a bomb. Leave it alone. Hey, uh, we've got a great uh, guest coming up, Frank Ninavaji. He's been on the show before. Uh, he's a Yale um, professor, attending physician at the Yale New Haven Hospital, and is a board-certified psychiatrist and neurologist. He's here to talk to us about an article he wrote in Psychology Today called The Archaeology of Misbehavior. A lot of times the behavior you see in your children today is really 
because of something kind of like the bomb that's unexpected, something that's gone off in their past. And he's here today uh, on the phone, actually, to help us walk through how to get, how to undig and to dig down and to get down into and undo some of the some of the pain of your children's past. Interesting stuff, maybe leading to some current day misbehavior. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, sometimes it seems like no matter how many times you tell your children what they're doing is wrong, they need to stop it. They just continue to kick, you know, throw that throw that tantrum in the aisles of the grocery store, maybe scream in the middle of church, break other kids' toys on the playground. You've tried everything, right? You've tried everything, and it just doesn't seem like you can get them to stop misbehaving. Wouldn't it be nice if you could dig past the kicks, the screams, the broken toys, and bring to the surface the real emotions that are causing the tantrum? Well, our guest today, Dr. Frank John Ninavaji, is an associate uh, attending physician at the Yale New Haven Hospital. He's a board certified um, in psychiatry and neurology, and he's here today to help us understand the archaeology of misbehavior, which is the title of an article he wrote for Psychology Today. Dr. Ninavaji, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Yes, it's my privilege, and thank you for inviting me again. You bet. I love having you on. I, to me, to have an expert that can help us with the real situations we're dealing with our, with our kids, it's essential. We've all done it, though, Dr. Ninavaji. When we sit there and we struggle with our kids, they just keep misbehaving, and almost our need to control it makes it worse. To talk to us about what's going on when our child is misbehaving so much. Well, that's uh, something that I did address in the um, Archaeology of Misbehavior uh, article that you mentioned in Psychology Today. Usually, there's always a sort of uh, underground uh, performance going on. Roots are usually, as in nature, we see trees, flowers, plants, and for them to exist, they have to have and do have roots, sometimes very deep. So, so too, with misbehavior, misbehavior in many ways is important, but it's sort of the surface of um, processes that are going on unconsciously, huh. which means not in the child's clear conscious awareness, nor in a parent's clear conscious awareness. So focus usually is only immediately on the uh, external concrete misbehavior and not on its root causes. So, so this is something like when they're misbehaving, they're just doing it more on autopilot and there's something going on deeper down that they're not even probably aware of. I think that's precisely right. When you use that word autopilot, I think of it as a sort of reflexive, unconscious, uh, response and with children and when I say children most people under 18 
Um, uh, and the, the younger uh, a child is, the more automatic and reflexive the reactions hmm. are. It all has to do with impulse control and unmatured impulse control, dysregulation in impulse control. And so the younger they are, so this is really 18, so any behavior, or not any, but many misbehavior that behave, misbehaving actions that we see with our kids from 18 under, we could pretty much bet that there's a reflexive, you call it, is that like a reactive? Yes, reaction, reflex, an automatic response, unthinking, uh-huh. unplanned, yeah. really unintentional, Yeah. even though it might be quote-unquote bad. And I don't have too many problems using that word because, to me, that word means unhealthy, unproductive, and unsuccessful. Yeah. So but, I do use that word with parents and families that, and children. Yeah. You, but it's interesting because we, we as parents tend to think they're doing this intentionally. They're just like being naughty. They're right. intentionally being bad. But you're saying a lot of this is just, you know, like – Reflexive. Developmental immaturity reflexivity. It's, yeah, it's like it's, you, you, big words. it's the reflex test, right? You hit my knee with a little hammer, it moves. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's really well known, especially in the last five years, that the human nervous system, a central nervous system, the brain and the spinal cord, but especially the brain, doesn't fully mature and myelinize and flesh itself out properly and and sufficiently until about age 30. Hmm. We used we used to think it was about age 18 right up to adolescence. Now that period of from roughly 18 to 29 they call it emerging adulthood and it's physiologically shown that their nervous systems uh, at that age chronologic age are not myelinized uh, sufficiently which means the higher functioning, the higher functions of the brain, like executive functions, planning, thinking through, uh, identifying a problem, identifying sources of a problem, and then, in a way, most importantly, problem solving, is not really matured, strengthened, is not really efficient. It's very, I use the word feeble, it's very friable, it's very delicate, and That's why these um, reflexive uh, autopilot reactions occur, because they're sort of just automatic. uh, I call it biomental, the combination of the biology and a combination of what we think of as mind or psychology sort of merge together and fused, and it just explodes in a response or a reaction, usually without thinking, without forethought. Well, and then it seems like that over time could create habits or exactly. scripts that we could use till we're 80. Exactly, and that's what happens with uh, quite a few people. I that's guess that, because then it's my, myelinized, right? That's right, myelinized by age 30, and then the habits become more... Let's put it like this, calcified, yeah. crusted, habituated, conditioned. And then people over 30 don't realize they don't have enough uh, self-reflection or capacity for introspection to examine themselves and how much they simply reflexively react to almost everything in life, including their own thoughts. Mm. 
You know what else, Dr. Ninavaji, I've got to ask you, because I've always thought this, that so if I create a habit or a pattern that, that deals with just kind of my my emerging adulthood brain, let's just say I'm I'm 17 years old, I'm petulant, I'm reactive, I'm moody, and I get this pattern, this habit that starts. If I've got a habit that I started when I was 17 or 5, right. I can still manifest that when I'm 60, but I'm still running a habit that was created with a brain of a five-year-old. Early on. Mm-hmm. And so That's literally, I'm just living a script that I learned young. Well, in a way, you can call it mindless. Yeah, oh, no, totally. Right. Right. It's Which is why mindless. we look at these people like we could fight with our partner and argue with them and be looking at them like, oh, my heck, you're so immature. <laughs> But you, you might be fighting with their five-year-old from years ago. Right. That's. Right, I guess that's right. why. Is that why you called this the archaeology of misbehavior? Right. That's why I called it the archaeology of misbehavior, because uh, we start with the superficial runes or the misbehaviors yeah. or the problems, and then we have to sort of dig much uh, deeper and find out the source and the roots in order to uh, extirpate the causes in order to mitigate, modulate the causes, and it is possible. Well, and it seems like it's it's a smarter way to think about this than just telling someone to grow up, <laughs> right? That's right. Because I, I've got to understand there's a history to this. There's a there's an there's something I've got to go back and dig through to get to the real root instead of just assuming the behavior is what it is. Exactly. And uh, years ago in psychoanalysis, they used to call this the principle of genetic continuity. Anything you see in the here and now chronologically has a history going way, way, way back, some say even into infancy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you can you can totally see that. So let's do this. We're speaking with Dr. Ninavaji, Frank Ninavaji, and... Um, we're going to take a break, come back. I'm going to have him try to explain to us how we get down to what's really behind all of this. How do we get down to past hurt, past anger, what we can do to help our children process their emotions uh, better than just focusing on the behavior, right? Than focusing on the ruins. Let's dig down and maybe look to some deeper causes, some deeper triggers. Um, This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. More with Dr. Frank Ninavaji and uh, the archaeology of misbehavior. Welcome back, friends. To the Matt Townsend Show. On the line with this is Dr. Frank Ninavaji, who is um, he is an attending physician at uh, Yale New Haven Hospital, is board certified in psychiatry and neurology. He's also um, the author of the book Biomental Child Development: Perspectives on Psychology and Parenting and Envy Theory. You can find that on Amazon.com. Um, and we love having him on because you know he's the real deal. He's a psychiatrist that helps us understand how to cut through some of the stuff that we that's going on with our children and get down to some of the deeper issues. Today he's teaching us about uh, all that emotion, all that behavior you see. Underneath it, there's something else going on, 
And uh, we want to find out what we're supposed to do with it. Dr. Ninavaji, welcome back to the show. Right. I'm here. Okay, teach us. So when we when we see our child misbehaving, throwing a major tantrum in the middle of the store, and it just keeps going and keeps going, how, how are we supposed to handle that? Well, uh, uh just like with archaeology, it goes in levels, uh, from the superficial to the deeper. So the first level, the first interaction would be, or the first intervention would be to um, identify quickly in your mind what's happening and then create conditions for safety around the child. In other words, stop any behavior that might be harmful to the child, to others, to property. Once that's contained, which also may include removing yourself and the child from the scene of the crime, from the scene of the action, to a quieter area, um, is very, very important. Then, when a child is settled down, and when there is no more danger of harm to self, other, or property, then trying to help the child just uh, in a sort of maybe two-minute way to identify in words what just happened, what those misbehaviors were, and then in another one or two minutes try to infer out loud with the child why you think the child behaved that way. And usually uh, common reasons are annoyance, frustration, a child being angry, feeling inadequate, or disappointed because, uh, let's say the child says, Mommy, uh, I want that candy. And you, you as the mother or father say, we can't have that now, but I'll think about it. Many children cannot tolerate that disappointment and frustration, and they respond with anger and maybe a temper tantrum. Huh, yeah. So doing a quickie like that is very important, and then waiting uh, for some time that day uh, when you are home and when you both have quiet time to sort of review, not in a, a punitive way, but in a constructive, they call this uh, learning moments. It could be a learning five minutes. It could be a learning ten minutes. With a child, what just happened maybe two hours ago or this morning, and then going a, a bit deeper into it. Huh, and you like it, You like to wait, I guess, is that just to let kind of the emotion, the chemistry evaporate? Settle down from the bubbling uh, cauldron of heat, confusion, rage, and uh, a lot of mixed emotions going on all at once. Yeah. And and then you actually, I guess, in that moment, we're really trying to be constructive. We're trying to 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 right. do some teaching, but some learning to go a little deeper. Absolutely right. And some of the uh, reasons, you know, the, the sort of uh, generic reasons are when a child experiences loss, any form of loss, and in the article I mentioned, uh, loss... Uh, takes shape as any transition, any change, any separation. Many times it's a frustration. If a child wants something and doesn't get it, it uh, any change at all, even in some families, uh, mentioning to a child, okay, we're almost about ready for bedtime. It's time to go in your room, clean up, and 
you need to be in bed within you know, another 20 minutes or half an hour. Children view that as a change and a separation, and separations are equated with loss. Yeah. So when a child experiences loss, they feel disappointed. They feel that this is an unexpected occurrence, almost like a deprivation. Yeah. And it triggers off so much inside that the developmentally immature child isn't prepared to understand and manage and cope with in a successful way, uh, that you usually have the spoiling or disruptive misbehaviors emerge. And, and you can see that a lot. Like when you're like, okay, time to go, clean up your toys, we got to leave, and you're leaving one of their friends' houses or something, there's a, a lot of times you can see that pain. Yeah, they stall, and then, and then yeah, then it kicks in, and then it gets ugly. Exactly. And that, that really, like what you were saying earlier, that ugliness is just, it's just reactivity. That's just, right, right. this is now reflexive. This is just them reacting to their pain. It's a kind of survival, crude, primitive, uh, reptilian brain, limbic system, survival mode of dealing with uh, an overwhelming uh, bunch of emotions that doesn't, that's not, that they don't feel is good, right, what they want, and it, it's felt as a threat to their survival. Yeah. So they offensively kick back and yell and scream, hoping it'll go away. But instead, you as a parent react to it, and it kicks in your fight or flight. That's right. And then you're fighting with a five-year-old. A five-year-old adult is fighting with a five-year-old child. <laughs> what a nightmare. But Frank, that really is that. And by the way, and then that becomes that could be husband, wife, that could it be could. father, son in their fifties and seventies. Oh, of course, any two human beings. What would you? We have about a minute, minute and a half left. What would you suggest to us, Frank, as um, as as like the best place to begin? Um, and I guess is it is it understanding our own pain? If we understand ourselves better, will we be able to understand our kids better? Where do we begin to actually get deeper into this emotional understanding and management? Well, I think you really hit the nail on the head. Charity begins at home. Everything begins with the individual and with self-reflection, pause, introspection, trying to understand uh, in the best possible way, you know who who you are as a person what your strengths, what your weaknesses are, what your uh, vulnerabilities are. And once you have that more or less down pat, it can never be accomplished. It's an ongoing process, lifetime. But once you have it uh, down pat enough, then you are able to share that um, group of insights with the other person you're with, be it a child or an adult. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. then you're aware. I mean, awareness is this mindfulness, right? It's now me being in my mind, leading my mind. That's right. Pretty powerful. Mindfulness, consciousness, becoming more consciously aware of yourself, of the other, and, and the interaction that's occurring, trying to evaluate it in a discriminating fashion and making sense out of what's positive or healthy and what isn't. Yeah. And then problem-solving instantly. This is what they call executive functioning. And an adult over the age of 30 is supposed to have intact executive functioning and be um, skilled or somewhat skilled at problem-solving 
with self and with others. That's that's the key, isn't it? Getting to that level of uh, consciousness and executive functioning. Well, Dr. Frank Ninavaji, we appreciate you again. I highly recommend that uh, everybody go to psychologytoday.com. Look up his blog there called Envy This. He has many articles on there that will walk you through your children handling some of their issues, handling some of their language, their misbehavior, some of their other things you may run into. He truly is a great professional and a wonderful resource for all of us. We're going to take a break and go visit our guys after the break from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. What makes me feel this way are my two buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Today, joining us, Spencer Linton and sports broadcasting extraordinaire, Jason Shepard. Hello, gentlemen. How come you've never introduced me as a sports broadcasting Because you're not Jason Shepard, for crying out loud. we known each other, man? I know, I know. But hey, I've actually you can not... let him say whatever he wants to say. I've known Jason fine. even longer. <laughs> And he he and by the way he dropped me twenty bucks today so oh I'm glad you got that I was worried that yeah. you got lost in the mail and yeah, no, I really appreciate that that's gonna go a long way money talks doesn't it it, it totally does hey guys happy um, happy son and daughter day hey thank you I didn't realize it was son and daughter I day. didn't realize that either oh it totally is son and daughter day. the day where we celebrate sons and daughters also we could celebrate them on their birthdays Christmases. Pretty much every day in my life. Yeah, why isn't every day son and daughter day? I don't have to treat you nicely because it's not son and daughter day. Yeah, what it needs to be is like parents' day. Because parents, we're doing all the work. When do we get taken care? No, Mother's Day, Father's Day, that's different. That's just to buy gifts. Isn't there a parents' day? I'm sure there is. Is there not a parents' day? If there's a son and daughter day, hey, if there's a pizza day, there's got to be a parents' day. If there's a... Peach, peaches day, eat peaches day. Oh, I love that day. There's an everything day. Yes. If, if there isn't a parent's day, we need to figure out a way to get that thing started. I'll start it tomorrow. I want it. Write that down. Ben, write that down. Hey, did you guys hear about the New York lawyer? This is crazy. I, I don't know if you guys watch Game of Thrones, but I'm not allowed to. Um, but apparently in the Game of Thrones, they have this thing that they call, what do they call it? It's called trial by combat. And an, in, in New York City, an attorney filed a court with the a brief with the court asking a judge to grant a trial by combat in a civil suit. And what that means is he want they want both of the people to go get uh, find a, a representative that could then go to battle against the, their champion battles the other champion, and the winner wins the lawsuit. Because that's completely logical. Isn't that crazy? But I guess it's it's citing some archaic law that has not necessarily been done away with. But early trials in combat meant they used weapons like uh, war hammers, cudgels, and quarter staves with sharp iron tips. Where do you even find those things these days? Oh, hello, Walmart. Have you not been (laughs) to the cudgel aisle? 
the, the, the sporting goods department at your local Walmart? <laughs> yes. They have small, all, all the way up through extra, extra large quarter staves yeah. available for purchase. They're right next to the gun cabinet. <laughs> There's a cabinet called cudgels, and they have they have cudgels sharpened, but those are always locked up, and non cut non sharpened cudgels. I actually don't even know what a cudgel is. So, um, but then you can also get your leather armor, all that stuff. But some are believing that the courts will probably not go with them on this uh, brief. Gasp! I know. So instead, they're going to just have to do it the old fashioned way, where they settle, and somebody wow. pays a lot of money. I know. Why are people so special sometimes? You know what? It's I think it has something to do with inbreeding. <laughs> well, then there's that. <laughs> I just I don't know, but it's happening more and more. I think it has something to do with mixed martial arts and lack of oxygenation when you're too in many a, energy drinks. Yeah, too many energy drinks, and then you're in a you're in a, a hold where you can't breathe for about five minutes. Or it could just be watching Game of Thrones too much. That might be it, too. I, I've never watched that because I hear it's really intense and really provocative. Yeah, I've heard that, too. My wife's like, the last thing you need is more provocation. Listen, when Saturday Night Live is making fun of Game of Thrones <laughs> for being too provocative. I know. When Saturday Night Live is doing that. Then, then something's wrong. Yes. You actually know then it's really more like the political debates. Because Game of Thrones and the political debates are a lot; they have a lot in common. Hey, are you guys still doing your thing? Uh, what's that called? That well, show thing you do? Given that we have a broadcasting extraordinaire in the building, <laughs> and again, thank you so much for you that bet. introduction. Jason, that anytime. means the world to me, and I do appreciate the cash flow. We figured that we would do the show. What? What, what are you going to do it on? Well, because now that you've actually got sports news, because BYU football is practicing all the time. Yes, it's happening. I don't know if you've heard, Matt, but what? there is. Some serious love being thrown around by Bronco Mendenhall to his backup quarterback. No. Is he loving this young freshman? To quote him, I love, 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 more loves. Tanner Mangum. Do you know what? He loves him. That, that is true. <laughs> is he, and, he didn't really say that. That is not a Bronco Mendenhall. He said that yesterday. Mendenhall. I promise. It's a quote. He said that. Three loves and then a love. Wow. He said more loves, too. Like I think like our show is impacting Bronco a lot because he's more loving. Is it because you have Holly on the show? Uh-huh. Oh. Holly's on the show starting in September, and I think she's already preparing her stuff, so she's probably bringing more love to the home. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just hypothesizing. Well, with love in the air, we are discussing why Bronco Mendenhall loves his backup quarterback so much. Cool. And why he should never see the field this season. Yes, Heaven forbid. Why that would be absolutely a big blow to the future of BYU football. No, I totally agree. Everybody's talking about Taysom needs to stay healthy because BYU needs to win football games in 2015. Yeah. We have a stance that Taysom Hill's health may be more important for the future than it is for the immediate season. Really? Mm. Just a teaser. Well... Okay, man, that's a good tease. I I'm gonna listen now or watch. <laughs> well, when you when he when I was he gonna say, in, isn't that just you, you tune in every day just in case? No, I I the, usually just nap. in case some knowledge is dropped like that every day, which yeah. it usually is. Well, no, it always is. But I this is that's right during my nap time, <laughs> and so I'm so tired. But this tease <laughs> has made me less tired. 
just the, that that topic that we will be discussing in mere moments. I can. That is that is essentially like, basically, it's like a Red Bull. <laughs> it will keep you awake. It's so good. Yeah. It's a cognitive Red Bull. Yep. Yes. Wrapped in an incredible pitch. Mm, I'm doing it. Okay, I'm in. Anything and with else? The broadcaster extraordinaire, Matt. Are yeah. you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Jason Shepard's going to rock and roll. Dude, the Shep. The Shep is in Studio B. The bar is being set very high right now. The shepherd, by the way, Jason, always leads the sheep. <laughs> Lead me, Jason. Always leads the sheep. Well, guys, that's going to be a good show. And um, Jason, welcome to the, the fill-in crew. Thank you very much. Just keep shoveling. That's all I can say. Hey, you know what? We'll do. And, and Spencer, we still love you tons. Thank you. Thank you. you- See if I ever have Brandon Crow, my... Awesome production doesn't bring you a bagel again. No, they, you guys you guys bring us a lot of good stuff. We're going to send something down your way as soon okay. as we have something. Okay. Be nice to your sons and daughters. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great show, gentlemen. Thanks, Thanks. Good stuff. Man, that's cool. That is true. I've never heard Bronco be so nice. I wonder what that's about. He's just trying to get good karma. I don't know. He's, he wants to make sure. He's a nice. The deal is he's that nice of a guy. I've seen him. You know, talk. He's that nice. He just, he. I would never imagine him saying love four times in a row. I don't know. Maybe I would. But he's got to keep that guy alive. He's got to keep that quarterback running. Um, great stuff, folks. Great show today. And again, you know, apparently, if you're going to go to court, you're going to have to fight it out in the traditional legal way. You're not going to have a trial by combat. So give up that idea. But wouldn't that be great if you can just say, uh, yeah, I'd like my surrogate here to fight your surrogate, and then we will then decide who wins this case? Oh, that would be cool. We could have a robot activity. We've talked earlier today um, about Trump. I'd like to play it. There's a quote we have by Trump, um, Donald Trump, admitting to something that's really interesting. Somebody threw a curveball at him because I don't remember exactly who said it, but it was some uh, some – Talking head thought he was he was just really being a whiner. And then in an interview today with Chris Cuomo, Chris asked him, are you a whiner? And you'd think that Donald would just go off. But instead, listen to what he said. I am the most fabulous whiner. I, I do whine because I want to win. And I'm not happy. If are I'm whiners not winning. winners? And I am a whiner. And I'm a whiner. And I keep whining and whining until I win. And I'm going to win for the country. And I'm going to make our country great again. Whiner. He's a fantastic whiner. Isn't that amazing? I think that tells you right there that the Don is, uh, he's really just good at spinning. Because one minute you could see that he'd stick you in the neck with a ballpoint pen if you called him a whiner. And the next minute he's agreeing with you. Because he whiners are winners. He created an alliteration. Whiners are winners. But, you know, in the end they're also whiners. Um, as we've been talking about on the show as well, uh, we, you know, at some point our character is going to lead us, right? It's going to make us, it's going to break us. And I think what we need is just less bloviating that we're seeing all through, not just with Donald, but all through the election process. Um, what we need is somebody that really can start to figure out what matters most and, He's, he's hit something that's really important, and we've talked about it earlier in the show. He's, uh, he's recognizing that people are in pain, 
And if they're in pain, then they'll accept apparently a lot of anger and a lot of whining and they'll accept people to say whatever that pushes back on the press and back on the government. But eventually, too, we need more than pushback. We also need some change. Hey, we remember on the show, we love to talk about a hero as we wrap it up, hopefully leave you with some light. 12-year-old Joseph Dees has been battling cancer, geoblastoma, an incurable brain tumor for four years now. Through chemotherapy sessions, those surgeries and radiation, the one thing that always kept a smile on Joseph's face were his toy Legos. Joseph decided that he wanted to spend the last few months of his life helping other kids in his situation to find some hope. Earlier this year, Joseph and his family began buying and distributing at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Uh, He was distributing Legos for these kids. He then went on to coin the name Building Hope, an organization that now hopes to spur Lego drives across the country. After his most recent drive, Joseph was estimated to have brought in Legos to some 300 children. So one boy dying of a geoblastoma of cancer found joy in giving, right? So to me, there's a universal principle there, right? If you want peace, if you want joy, you get out of yourself and you serve others. It's a pretty good dying, It's a pretty good uh, solution. It's a pretty good prescription for anybody that wants to have more joy, more peace. And we learned it from 12-year-old Joseph Dees. So Joseph Dees, you are the Townsend's hero of the day, my friend. Thanks for your incredible example. And our prayers are out with you and your family And thank you for teaching us the principle of giving. Very basic concept, right? A little challenge for you. Go out there. Give. Give. Get out of yourself. Arrows out, right? Out of yourself. Serve others. And when you do, you'll you'll feel peace. That's the promise of the principle. We're out of here, folks. Until tomorrow, uh, we'll bring you more ideas, more tools tomorrow to help you feel the good and find the good in the world. Until then, take care and make it a great one.